0: Hey, True Central. If you have your Bibles, grab them and turn with me to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll begin reading in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who who will prepare your way. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would continue to teach us more and more about who you are. Show us Jesus Christ and bless his time in your word. As we walk through these first eight verses, would you... Um, Would the ministry of your Holy Spirit guide and lead us into all truth? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the title of this message, the title of this sermon is The Long-Awaited Messiah. The Long-Awaited Messiah. What's the longest you've had to wait for something? Maybe you're waiting for your birthday that's coming up. Maybe you're waiting for the family vacation that's been planned for the near future. Maybe you've had to wait a long time to get something expensive that you wanted How about this one? I think it would be safe to say that we've all waited for this pandemic and COVID-19 to end. It's been about five months now, and we're all done waiting. Five months might seem like a lifetime, but it's nothing compared to how long the people of God waited for the Messiah. Now, do you know how long they waited to hear from a prophet of God? How long they kept How long they were kept in anticipation for the promised one to arrive. You know, before London goes to bed every night, I read the Bible to her. And not too long ago, as we were finishing the Old Testament, I would would tell her that we're so close to finishing the Old Testament. Pretty soon we'll be in the New Testament. Then I would show her the last page of the Old Testament as we were approaching it in the book of Malachi. I would turn one page over and show her that blank page with the header, the New Testament. That one page in the Bible between Malachi and the beginning of Matthew is about 400 years. 400 years. From From the time of the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there's 400 years that go by. And you can imagine the hunger of the people... It's been four centuries of time from when the last prophet Malachi spoke. Over 400 years of waiting and silence. God has not yet revealed Christ, and the people of God were desperately waiting to hear from God. Now, after 400 years, the people are going to hear from God through the lips of his prophet. And today we're going to see who that prophet was and what he was sent to do and say. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see three testimonies that will testify to the, to the Messiah. Three, tesi- three testimonies that will testify to the Messiah. So if you're taking notes, here's your outline. Number one, the testimony of Mark, verse 1. Number two, the testimony of the prophets, verses two and three. And number three, the testimony of John the Baptist, verses four through eight. So let's start off right away looking at the first testimony, the testimony of Mark found in verse one. The text reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here we have the testimony of Mark, the author of the gospel. He begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel. What does Mark mean by the beginning? What he means is that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. And this beginning of the good news starts with John the Baptist. So the beginning refers to the preparatory work of John the Baptist, which we'll see in verses 4 through 8. In other words, the beginning is identified with the ministry of John the Baptist, He's the prophet that God sends that will point the people and the nation to the Messiah. In the book of Acts, when the disciples were choosing their replacement for Judas, they had to choose someone who was with them and Jesus the entire time of his ministry. And we see the period of time mentioned in Acts 1 verses 21 to 22 as beginning with John the Baptist. So in Acts 1 verses 21 and 22 says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. So Mark starts off his gospel stating that the record, the historical record of the gospel message began with John the Baptist. Keep in mind that this beginning that began with John the Baptist doesn't end by the close of By the closing of the book of Mark, God's redemptive plan is still going on, even today. Jesus Christ has not come back yet, but one day he will return and establish his earthly kingdom. This beginning that Mark is talking about will have a glorious end when Christ returns. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The way the word gospel was used in secular Greek referred to a good report about an important event. For example, the birth of an emperor or the good news of a military victory was considered gospel or good news. Now, what more important and significant event in all of history can you think of that compares to the sinless life, sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of God in Jesus Christ. So Mark is going to unpack this gospel, this good news for us by showing us that this message of salvation is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. If you remember from the intro message, the aim of the book is this statement by Mark found in verse 1. Mark announces that the content of the gospel is the person of Jesus who is the Christ. And next, we see that Mark, he adds the Son of God after Jesus Christ. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What he's saying is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This was an assertion of Jesus' divinity. It was a declaration that Jesus was himself very God and equal with God. He is one in nature with God, co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. It's an affirmation of Jesus' deity, and it also shows his unique relationship to God the Father. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. There, God the Father calls Jesus his beloved son, pointing out their unique relationship. So we have Mark introducing Jesus as the Son of God. And that's a beautiful truth to place right at the beginning of this gospel. The timeless truth that Jesus is indeed God is central to Christianity. He's the true divine king. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you recall the intro message, Mark is writing to a Gentile Roman audience and the Romans regarded Caesar as God throughout the rest of this gospel. Mark is going to shatter this wrong view. Remember this statement as we study the gospel of Mark, Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. I'll say that again. Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. So Mark was not the only one who testified to the long-awaited Messiah. The prophets also testified, and that brings us to our next point. The testimony of the prophets found in verses 2 and 3 says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So verse 2 begins with the standard way to introduce an Old Testament quotation with as it is written. This marks the exact fulfillment of what was prophetically announced. In other words, this quotation is fulfillment of prophecy. This is important because this shows us that the coming of the Messiah was not an afterthought. It was not some new plan. This was the very plan of God from eternity past. Starting as far back as Genesis 315, we find predicted that Christ would crush the head of Satan. And throughout the Old Testament, we're told of the prophecies of a coming deliverer and redeemer. We're told of his birth, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection. Those are all promised. Not only that, the prophets of the Old Testament also predicted the coming of Jesus's forerunner hundreds of years before he was born. As we'll see, this is going to be fulfilled by John the Baptist. Redemption was worked out and accomplished in every step just as it was written. And although this was written in the past, this still holds authority today. Another way to put as it is written is as it remains written. So verses 2 and 3 are identified as coming from the prophet Isaiah. Although it's actually a combination of two old testament passages malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 this prophecy refers not to jesus but to john the baptist who was the forerunner who would prepare the people for the mightier one to come mark begins by referencing malachi chapter 3 verse 1 saying behold i send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way We see in both Matthew and Luke that Jesus himself declared this passage to refer to John the Baptist. Jesus speaking about John the Baptist said this, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So John was to be God's messenger to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. What we learn is that John the Baptist was sent by God ahead of the messenger as a as a royal herald to prepare the way the next quotation we find is from isaiah chapter 40 verse three and this quotation is used in all four of the gospel accounts with reference to john the baptist as the forerunner of jesus and isaiah 40 verse three expands on the mission of john the baptist the second part of verse three says prepare the way of the lord prepare the way of the lord So as a royal forerunner, John was tasked with making the road ready for the king's arrival. How was he to do that? Not by physically clearing the roads of debris and obstructions, but by removing obstacles of stubborn unbelief from the hearts and minds of sinners. John was to remove hindrances in the hearts of the people so that they would be ready to receive the Messiah. John the Baptist was to prepare the people by calling them to repentance. And in that way, he would be preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. So John's chief duty was to prepare people for the true Savior. And what we learn is the way of the Lord is the way of repentance, of turning from sin to righteousness, of turning spiritual paths that are crooked crooked into straight and holy ones. So to sum up we're told that john's preparatory ministry is a fulfillment of prophecy and it's authenticated and it authenticated jesus's messiahship and prepared for the beginning of his official ministry as the son of god we're told that john the baptist is god's messenger sent with god's message we're told that john the baptist is also the messiah's forerunner his task is to prepare the way his method is by preaching his message is one of repentance to call all people to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. So you see John here, he plays a very important role. He prepares the way for the one to follow. Notice the word way is used twice, in verse, once in verse 2 and once in verse 3. And the word path is used once in verse 3. And as we go through Mark, we're going to see that the way of God is ultimately the way of Jesus to the cross. So what can we take away from this? This is a testament to the accuracy of God's word. His word is inspired and errant and infallible. And we know that everything predicted or prophesied about will be accomplished exactly as God said it would be. The Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes centuries before they occur. Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11 reads, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So the Bible is 100% accurate. It is all truth and nothing but the truth. And we know that thousands of prophecies from the Bible have already been fulfilled, with some still remaining to be fulfilled in the future. Out of all the ones that have come to pass, not a single prophecy has been proven false. God said he would send a messenger, and he did. God said he would send a savior, and he did. And we'll see that soon enough. All these Old Testament prophecies are becoming history as we read Mark. The 400 years of silence is now broken. We've seen the testimony of Mark. We've seen the testimony of the prophets. Lastly, we'll see the testimony of John the Baptist in verses 4 through 8. the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verses 4 through 8 will describe John's ministry, John's makeup, and John's message. John's ministry, John's makeup, and John's message. We'll look at those one at a time, starting with John's ministry in verses 4 to 5. So what did John's ministry consist of? Mark begins by telling us that John appeared. John appeared. John was both a prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy, as we've, as we've learned. A couple more things about John. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, yet he was also the forerunner whose ministry the Old Testament prophets had foretold. And as a herald of Jesus, and being so closely associated with the Messiah's coming, it is said of him in Matthew 11.11, 11, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was the greatest prophet to ever live. His ministry consisted of baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptizing was the distinctive mark of John's ministry. However, his baptism was unlike the ritual washings that were common in that day. This wasn't a regular washing, which had to be continually repeated. John's baptism differed in that it was a one-time act, a single initiatory act expressing commitment. We know from history that the Jews performed a similar one-time washing of Gentile proselytes, symbolizing both their rejection of paganism and their embrace of the true faith. So for the Gentiles, this ceremony was the mark that they, as outsiders, would become part of God's people. For a Gentile proselyte to be baptized was nothing extraordinary. But John's call for the Jews to be baptized was radical. He was pretty much asking the Jews to undergo the same ritual as was required of a Gentile convert. And this was a powerful statement. To be born a Jew was not enough. To be a member of God's covenant people was not enough. John was telling the Jews in essence, Hey, you think you're insiders and not outsiders like the Gentiles. Guess what? I want you to see yourself as outsiders. I want you to acknowledge that you're no more fit for the Messiah's kingdom than the Gentiles. It doesn't matter if you're a physical descendant of Abraham or if you observe and keep all the laws. That's not enough to get you into God's kingdom. So whether Jew or Gentile, the way to come to God was through repentance and faith, through repentance and faith. It's through repentance and faith that you could be truly counted among the people of God. Let's turn our attention to a key word we find in verse 4, and that word is repentance. What is repentance? Do you know what repentance means? It's a word that you need to know and you need to understand. A simplified explanation is that it is more than remorse. It's more than grief or regret for sin. It's a deep change of mind that alters your attitude towards sin and bears fruit with a deliberate change of conduct. So very simply, it means turning from sin and turning to God, which results in righteous living. J.C. Ryle, a 17th century bishop of Liverpool, said this about repentance true repentance begins with knowledge of sin it goes on to work sorrow for sin it leads to confession of sin before god it shows itself before man by a thorough breaking off from sin it results in producing a habit of deep hatred for all sin so we're going to go way into more depth of on repentance when we get to mark chapter 1 verse 15 which talks about the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But for now, this is all we're going to understand about repentance. You cannot be saved without repenting. So now notice that Mark, he tells us that John not only baptized in the wilderness, but that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this baptism didn't actually result in the forgiveness of sins. Rather, it was a proclamation to prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, this was a baptism that was characterized by repentance. And a willingness to be baptized was evidence of a genuine heart transformation. Those who were self-righteous would never undergo such a public humbling act. Rather, it was for those whose minds had truly turned to forsake their sin and pride. It was, for those who had de- it was for those who would declare that they were no better than Gentiles. We learn here that baptism marked the outward profession of inward repentance. John's ministry wasn't simply a revival movement in Israel, turning people back to God with forgiveness as its goal. John's ministry was to prepare the people for the coming one and the announcement of the kingdom of God. So in other words, John's ministry was to call Israel to repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. As Paul said in Acts chapter 19 verse 4 years later, he said, John, the Bap- John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is Jesus. So John made much of Christ. He preached to the people so that they would understand not only that they have sinned, but that they were sinners. He preached to the people so that they would see their sins accurately and hate it. And we know that John had no power to bestow forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sins. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist says this, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John understood that his baptism couldn't and didn't forgive sins, but it is the one but it is the one who is coming after him, Jesus Christ, who can forgive sins. All in all, for everyone who submitted to John's ministry of baptism, it was a demonstration of an outward testimony of personal repentance which was the condition for receiving divine forgiveness that would come with Christ. So John was preparing for the one who would provide the ultimate basis for the forgiveness of sin. Let's again pause to talk about another key word. The key word here is forgiveness. Forgiveness speaks of a sending away or a dismissal. It speaks of the cancellation of sin without demanding the deserved punishment. And this forgiveness of sins is based on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So let me ask you, how do you receive forgiveness of sins? The answer, repentance. You need to repent in order to be forgiven. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved? If you haven't, then your sins are not forgiven. Meaning, you're still living in your sins, and one day your sins will demand a penalty, and you will receive the punishment that you deserve. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that He came to save sinners such as you and I. If you have not repented, now is the time to repent and believe in Christ. In the introduction, we talked about things that you wait for. And when it comes to repentance and salvation, don't wait. Do not wait. Do it now. And in verse 5, we see the response to John's ministry. After 400 years without a prophetic voice in Israel, John's ministry generated a mass amount of interest. John's preaching arrested the attention of the whole Jewish nation and created excitement all over Palestine. You can imagine the enthusiasm. It's been four centuries of silence. And now they're aroused from their slumber. The people were understandably drawn to John and his preaching. And this resulted in a massive attendance. Streams of people from all over kept going to John. Picture a continuing procession of people one after another coming to John to be baptized. His appeal was so far and wide that Mark says that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him, confessing their sins. So John attracted people from both the country and from Jerusalem. In other words, the country folk and the city folk. It didn't matter how far they had to travel or how difficult the trek to get to the wilderness was. They left their houses. They made the journey to hear John preach and to be baptized. His influence was unparalleled at this point in history. His popularity was off the charts. Yet John the Baptist understood that he was God's messenger and the Messiah's forerunner. He knew his task, he knew his purpose, and he knew his role. He was merely pointing the way, he was merely paving the way, he was merely preparing the way for the one who comes after him. With all the influence and attraction he received, John kept to his mission. It's spoken of John in Matthew 11 that he was the greatest of the prophets. However, John knew that Jesus was greater still. We're told that all the people were being baptized by John in the River Jordan. What a scene this must have been. An enormous amount of people responding to John's preaching. Again, baptism functioned as a visible indication of the inward act of repentance. And now Mark adds, confessing their sins. This is not an inward act, but a verbal act. To confess sins means to agree with God about them. It means to speak the same thing. It means to openly agree with the divine verdict concerning your deeds. In other words, it means to call sins by the name that God gives them. The people were openly declaring and publicly confessing their sins. Confessing sins while being baptized, marked the reality of their repentance. And this is what was happening as John was baptizing all that came to him. The only requirement was that was repentance and confession of sins. If there was no repentance, if there was no confession of sins, John didn't baptize them. As you can see, John's ministry is a vital one. It was one that was prophesied about and fulfilled by John the Baptist. He was both God's messenger and the Messiah's forerunner, sent to proclaim the mighty one who was to come after him. That's John's ministry. Next, his makeup in verse six. We're going to deal with his appearance or his attire. So what was John's outfit of the day? What did he wear? How did he look? What did he eat? Mark tells us he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, his clothing was the traditional clothes that were worn by those who dwelled in the wilderness. It's described as being sturdy, but neither fashionable nor comfortable as you would expect. The description of John's makeup reminds us of another Old Testament prophet, and that is Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, Elijah is described as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So Elijah was the one people expected to come and call the nation to repentance before the day of the Lord. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And in the New Testament, both Mark and Matthew tell us that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13, we read, and the disciples asked him, Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1 verse 17, we're told that John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John wore close similar to that of Elijah, and he's the one that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Mark tells us that his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. And as gross and inconceivable as you think eating locusts would be, it was actually permitted to eat according to Leviticus 11, verse 21 and 22. Wild honey was something that was commonly found in the wilderness. And what we might not realize is that John's diet was in keeping with his status as a Nazarite. He was a lifelong Nazarite. And you could read about that Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 through 13. But what we want to take notice of when it comes to John's makeup is that of his rough attire and his clean diet of wilderness food. John marked himself as one living apart from the impure, sinful, and self-indulgent Israel. As can be noticed in his makeup, John the Baptist lived a life of self-denial and non-conformity. His clothing was minimal. His diet was simple and sustaining. He understood and made it clear to everyone who saw and heard him that this world was not his home. He was a messenger with a message. He was not only preparing the people, but also preparing himself for what was coming, for who was coming. We've seen John's ministry and John's makeup. Finally, in verses 7 to 8, John's message what did he preach or what did he proclaim we know that john was jesus's herald sent by god to announce his coming so let's take take a look at his message he begins with after me comes after me comes which tells us that there's someone coming after john so who's coming look at verse three prepare the way of the lord the lord is coming jesus is coming the message is urgent. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John recognizes his unworthiness to kneel down, to stoop down, to untie the strap of the sandals of the one who is might, mightier than him. This task was for Gentile slaves. This was, this was one of the most menial tasks a slave could perform. Here, we see John expressing his humility. He considers himself not worthy of even the lowliest service for the one to come, despite the fact that he himself was a prophet. Remember, John was well known. In Luke chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that the multitudes were so strongly impressed with John that they were questioning in their hearts whether he might be the Christ. However, with all his fame and popularity, John says that he's the lowest kind of slave, compared to Jesus Christ. John understood that the primary focus of his ministry was to point people to another person. John knew the limits of what he could do. He could only prepare others for the one who could really do something for them. And shouldn't this be true of all of us? The strength of any ministry is determined by how much it points to Jesus Christ. The strength of any ministry is determined by how much it points to Jesus Christ. We know there's no power in a church leader. There's no saving strength in a preacher. Our church can have multiple services, multiple programs, a new building, several services. But unless it's all used to show people Jesus Christ, it's pointless. And how about on an individual level? Are you telling people to look to, at you Or telling people to look at Christ? Are you more concerned about your popularity, your status, your reputation than about pointing people to Jesus? We need to learn the humility of John the Baptist. He preached Jesus Christ. John's message also includes this, that I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A commentator notes, It is as if John is saying, All I can do is wash you on the outside with water, but he can transform and cleanse you on the inside. In other words, I can prepare your hearts, but being immersed in water doesn't cleanse your hearts. I can show you what you need, but I can't give you what you need. I can prepare you for the forgiveness of sins, but Christ is the only one who can accomplish forgiveness of sins. Christ is the only one who can give you the Holy Spirit. We know that this takes place when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1 verse 5, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he says that John the baptized, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The not many days from now refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So what we see is that John's baptism was symbolic and provisional, but Jesus's baptism would introduce the reality that would be permanent. In other words, the water baptism by John was a symbol of the spiritual baptism by Jesus. John is not magnifying himself, but pointing to Jesus as one who is greater. John keeps showing us that there was an immeasurable difference between his ministry and the one he is preaching and preparing the way for. John was preparing the people and the nation with his message and his baptism so that they would be ready for the, mas- the Messiah who was coming. So to sum up, John's message in verses 7 and 8 point us back to verse 1, where we have the word gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah that John the Baptist has been sent to prepare the way. This long-awaited Messiah is God himself. His kingdom is one of forgiveness, blessing, and salvation, and it comes to those who repent and confess their sins. And for those that do, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John teaches us some great lessons with his message. His ministry exalted Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And that should be our cry as well, that he must become greater and greater, and that I must become less and less. It's not about us. It's about him. John the Baptist understood something very important that we need to understand. His role as a messenger of God, as a herald of Jesus, was not his reward. Fulfilling his role was not his reward. Jesus was his reward. And in the same way, Jesus is our reward. And that means that Jesus needs to increase and we need to decrease. John also spoke plainly of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, we need to set the Lord Jesus fully before others and show them his fullness and his power to save. We need to set before others the work of the Holy Spirit and the need to be born again. So again, are you pointing others to Christ? Are you telling others about Jesus, about his power to save, about the Holy Spirit, about the need to be born again? What thoughts do you have of Christ? What thoughts do you have of the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized by His grace and indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Have you been born again? These are important questions to ask and answer. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we've seen three testimonies that testify to the Messiah. The testimony of Mark, the testimony of the prophets, and the testimony of John the Baptist. So now the question becomes, so what? So what? Why is this important to me? And all of the testimonies declare and point in some way to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He truly is the long-awaited Messiah, We get testimony from the author, Mark, from the prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, and from John the Baptist. That should be enough witness to Jesus' authority and divinity for you to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. However, there's something else that will drive home the point even more. Next week in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see yet another testimony. It's going to be the testimony of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. God the Father is going to declare that Jesus is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Now you can disagree or argue with the testimonies from this message, but you definitely cannot argue with the testimony of the Father and the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'll, I'll end with this. Remember, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know this good news, you know it now. So don't wait. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do know the good news, but have never repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then the same thing goes for you. Don't wait. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do know this good news and have repented and believed in Christ, again, then don't wait. Go tell others this good news. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks once again for your word. May your spirit apply it to our hearts, plant it deep down within our souls that it would cause us to bear fruit, help us to apply your word, help us to understand and acknowledge that you are God and you have sent um, your prophet John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord and we pray, I pray that um, the good news of Jesus Christ would be on the lips of those who, who are yours. And if, they have, if they're not a believer, that they would repent, place their faith, and trust in you. To you be all the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.